Isn't this beautiful? This is just a wonderful, a wonderful space. So wonderful to be back with you. My name is Mark Strauss, and um, this is my home church, even though it's been a long time. And it is a great privilege this morning to be continuing this wonderful series, uh, Not So New, Not So Normal, about the early church in the book of Acts. Not so new because this faith has been around for a long, long time, 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years when you count the Old Testament. But it's not so normal because the early church in Acts introduced a brand new way of living, radically at odds with the world around them. I've been listening to the podcast to to catch up on the series, and it has just been phenomenal. Uh, Two weeks ago, Acts chapter 15, probably the best message I've ever heard on Acts 15, if not one of the best messages I've ever heard. Pastor Ryan was just unbelievable. If you haven't heard that message, go back and listen to it. Not right now. Stay here right now. But go back and and listen to it. It is life-changing. And I have to say this, and I can, because I don't work here, uh, we are spoiled at Emmanuel Faith with the teaching we get. We are absolutely spoiled with the godly leadership he's given us. Do you realize that in the last 82 years of our existence, there's only been five senior pastors in that? That's unheard of in church life, where where there's turnover. There can be five a year in some places, Pastor Earl Morgan, legendary founder of the church. Pastor Coy Merritt, masterful balance of relational skills and faithfulness to to God's word. Our third pastor, Dr. Dr. Richard, somebody, I can't remember his last name. (laughs) We called him dad around our house. But, But Bible expositor extraordinaire, right? Then Dennis Keating, my mentor in ministry, out of this world in terms of communicating God's word in clear and relevant ways. And now, Pastor Ryan Paulson, the whole package, deep thinker, brilliant communicator. I haven't even mentioned people like Pastor Jim Welch, here for 40 years as associate pastor. God has been so faithful over the years. And so I have to say, it's a little intimidating standing right here, right? This is like hallowed ground. I'm afraid a lightning bolt's going to strike me and say, get out of there. You don't deserve to be there. I'm not worthy, right? But, you know, that's how the Apostle Paul must have looked to the people of Athens when he ascended up Mars Hill, the hallowed ground of those beloved and great philosophers, the greatest thinkers of the ancient world. Paul must have looked like a hillbilly addressing a room full of Nobel laureates as he faced the greatest challenge of his life on Mars Hill. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. Let me give you the context of the passage we're looking at today. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's been preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, establishing small house churches. Paul's greatest challenge up to this point has been physical persecution and trials. You saw that in the sermon last week as Paul goes to Philippi, preaches the gospel, but he and Silas are seized and beaten and thrown in jail, eventually resulting in the salvation of that Philippian jailer. From Philippi, Paul went on to Thessalonica and started a church. Things went great. The church got established, but then persecution broke out once again. He had to flee from there. He fled to Berea. Things started out well there, established a church there. But then his opponents from Thessalonica came to Berea. 
And in Berea, they chased him out as well. Again, Paul is forced to flee because of persecution. And now he comes to Athens in southern Greece and faces a very different challenge. You see, for centuries, Athens was the intellectual capital of the world. The home of great minds of philosophy like Socrates, like Plato, like Aristotle. Home of the great historians like Herodotus, Thucydides. Home of great scientists like like Hippocrates, Hippocrates, the founder of modern medicine. And so while in the past, the Apostle Paul has faced great physical challenges, persecution and trials. In Athens, he faces the greatest intellectual challenge yet. Look at verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas, whom he left in Berea. In Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. In Athens, Paul encounters a city of incredible pluralism and diversity. There are idols everywhere, shrines and temples throughout the city. And as a monotheistic Jew, this is disturbing to Paul. It's spiritually oppressive. I remember years ago, I was in Thailand and walking through the marketplace, and all of the the Buddhist idols and gods and Hindu gods were all around me, and it was was spiritually oppressive. So Paul does what we all do when we're, we're feeling threatened. He goes to where he's most comfortable. He goes to the Jewish synagogue where he preaches the most. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Notice there's two groups in the synagogue. There's Jews, right? And then there's God-fearing Greeks. And Paul would preach the message of, of the Old Testament, essentially. How God called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be his people. And from their line, he raised up the Messiah and Savior. And those Jews and those God-fearing Greeks would recognize that message. So this was, this was the message Paul preached. Read through the book of Acts. This is the message he preaches everywhere he goes. But notice then Paul begins to branch out into the marketplace. Outside of his comfort zone. And in the marketplace, his ideas, he, his ideas conf- are confronted by a new and more sophisticated challenge. Look at verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Now, Epicureanism and Stoicism were two of the pop- most popular Greek philosophies of the day. Epicurus, from the early 4th century BC, was a, was a philosopher... He was a materialist who denied the supernatural and said only the material world of atoms existed. Does that sound familiar? Death was the end of both body and soul. So the supreme good in life then, if if there's nothing except atoms, the supreme good in life was simple pleasures. This is a form of hedonism. There's an old beer slogan you might remember. I'll date myself here, right? It said, you only go around once in life. So grab for all the gusto you can, right? Schlitz beer. That's Epicureanism right there, right? The answer to the deepest questions in life. Beer, right? Live for pleasure. Live for now, because there ain't nothing else. Stoics, founded by Zeno in the 3rd century BC. Zeno believed that the goal of life was to live a life of virtue in accord with nature. To suppress desires of excess and live a simple life of independence and self-sufficiency. 
sort of a back-to-nature type, right? Hug a tree, go vegan, eat some tofu, right? Drive electric, or better yet, ride a bike, recycle, the natural lifestyle. Do these two philosophies, hedonism and naturalism, sound familiar, right? The Apostle Paul comes to Athens, and what does he do? He walks right into 21st century America. And they hear his message about Jesus and say, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Look at verse 18, second half. Some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And Luke adds, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. A Jewish God named Jesus who was crucified, crucified, that's hilarious, risen from the dead in a physical body. The Greeks viewed the idea of a physical resurrection as abhorrent, just absurd. You know, it's like you're in the grave, you're decomposing, and you, you rise from the dead, right? This is the walking dead from their perspective. And they say, what is this fool talking about? Notice they call Paul a babbler, a babbler. That's a great Greek word. It's spermalagos. Isn't that fun? You just, it's fun to say it. Spermalagos basically means a seed picker. You ever seen a bird just out there just sort of picking around, just picking around? And the, the idea is about a guy who doesn't really know what he's talking about, but picks up little bits of trivia here and there, little bits of trivia. Here's a lexical definition of this word. <laughs> And if, that's what I thought of. Okay, I'll date myself again, right? Cliff Clavin of Cheers, right? Some of you remember that. The lexicon says this. Someone who acquires bits and pieces of relatively extraneous information and proceeds to pass them on with pretense and show. An ignorant show-off. And Paul begins preaching the gospel and they say, Who is this babbler? Who is this Cliff Clavin? Because what he's saying sounds like nonsense. So Paul is challenged. He's taken to be an illiterate fool in the face of Greece's great philosophers. Later on, Paul would write this. He would say, Jews demand signs, powerful signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's an oxymoron in the ancient world. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness. To Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To Greeks, this was foolishness, but Paul knows it's the power of a transforming life, the power of God for salvation, the power to heal broken lives, the power to set prisoners free. But how in the world is he going to connect to an audience that he shares so little in common with? He can't talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promises made to them. They've never heard of these guys. Can't talk about the promised Messiah. Who's the Messiah? It makes no sense to these Greek philosophers. So Paul addresses, Paul assesses his audience and adapts his message to one they can understand. We talk about this as contextualizing the gospel. Paul responds by contextualizing the gospel for his hearers, making the message understandable and relevant in a new 
cultural context. And in doing so, Paul turns the tables on these brilliant philosophers and schools them in what is true wisdom, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In verse 19, Paul is invited by these philosophers to a place called the Areopagus. Verse 19, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're you're presenting. Now the Areopagus, there's the Areopagus now in Athens. Uh, Areopagus, Areopagus means hill of Ares, just below the Acropolis there in Athens. Ares was the Greek god of war. The Roman equivalent was, was Mars. The name of the, god of the, the, the Roman god of war was Mars. So this is often referred to as Mars Hill. Some churches are called Mars Hill when they engage with culture and respond to the culture around them. Now the council of Areopagus was a group of philosophers who oversaw the religious and moral life of Athens. And they asked Paul to come. They're certainly curious, right? But also mocking a bit. Verse 20. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to, to know what they mean. He sounds like a babbler, but we're interested, right? I love Luke's comment in verse 21 there. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul says all day long it's the same thing in Athens. Blah, 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 blah. People sharing their ignorance with one another. I said this was like 21st century America. This is the internet, right? Right here. (laughs) You get on the internet, right? Get on some, and and someone has made a comment, everyone's respond, blah, 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 blah. You you get online, you go, you know, where do these people get the time to write all this? Doesn't anyone work anymore, right? But in a culture where there's plenty of discretionary income, you can, you can just sit around. So, so they take Paul to Starbucks, otherwise known as Mars Hill, to hang out with the intellectuals. And they're going to school him in their, their wonderful sophistry. That's what they refer to it. Sophistry, wisdom. And I said this had to be a little intimidating. These were the greatest minds in the ancient world. Paul was a tent maker, a Jewish tent maker from Tarsus. It's not a fair fight. But Paul is up for it because he knows the simple gospel message is the greatest wisdom in the world. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So Paul starts with something they have in common. The search for meaning and purpose. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. I see you're very religious. Now that looks like a compliment. (laughs) And perhaps it is, right? But perhaps it's also a little bit of a dig. You're very religious. Your religious can have positive connotations. I mean, even today, right? You're very spiritual. But it could also have negative connotations, right? It could also mean you're very superstitious. Suppose maybe your friend wants to introduce you to a possible date. She says, he's, he, he's, he's really good looking. He's really got a nice per- personality. And he's very religious. And that could mean two things. It could mean he's a stand-up guy. He's got lots of integrity. Or it could mean he's inclined to head to Waco and join a cult, you know. <laughs> he's very religious. But then Paul explains why he says they're very religious. Verse 23. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. 
I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Essentially, Paul says, you guys are really smart. That's obvious. People like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. But you haven't quite figured out this God thing. You see, throughout the ancient world, there were, there were altars and temples to gods of every conceivable kind. Gods of war, gods of love, gods of fertility. And they would offer sacrifices and gifts to these gods to make them happy. Because you want to please these gods, you don't want to offend them. You offend the god of war, you might lose the battle. Right? You offend the god of love, you might not get a date. Or if you do get a date, you might have a piece of lettuce on your, you know, on your lip the whole time you're eating dinner, right? You don't want to offend the God of fertility. You might not have children. So they would do everything they could to, to appease the gods, not to offend them. But what if, what if you miss a God? What if there's a God you don't know about? So they would actually have altars to unknown gods. And we, we have examples of this. Here's an example of this. This was found in Rome in the Palatine Hill. Basically a God to cover all your bases theology. It's a little bit like... Your kids, they're getting old enough, they're, not, they're just not sure they believe in Santa anymore, but just in case. Right? Just, they still leave the milk and cookies out, because you, know, you don't want to offend the old guy. You, you don't want to show up without any, any gifts on Christmas morning. Just in case theology. And Paul latches on to something here. There's a strong sense of uncertainty and fear in their religion. There's a recognition they don't really get it, that they're missing something. So he's going to reveal them what is missing. They've not yet met the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. So Paul takes the great philosophers to school and he teaches them three great attributes, three great truths about God and reality. Here's the first one. The first one is that God is sovereign. The one true creator of all things. God is sovereign. The gods of the Greek pantheon were kind of like superheroes today, right? One step up from humans. On Wednesday night now, uh, our kids come over often. We have a family night together, and we have a meal together. And we've been watching the Avengers series, right, the, of, of movies, these superheroes. And they have uh, these amazing superpowers, but they are deeply flawed, right? They're all in need of therapy. They're emotional train wrecks, desperate for human attention and for human love. Paul says, that's not the one true God. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. Paul says, the one true God is completely self-sufficient and sovereign. You can't control him. You can't manipulate him. You can't bribe him. You can't play on his emotions. He's above that. Verse 25, he is not served by human hands. As if he needed anything, because he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Did you know that? God doesn't need our worship. He is absolutely self-sufficient. Do you remember the episode with Moses and the burning bush? When God says, you need to go and tell my people I'm going to set them free. And Moses says, what if they ask your name? What is your name? You remember what God said? He said, my name is I am that I am. I exist because I exist. Everything else in the universe is dependent on something, has a cause. God is the great uncaused cause. He has always existed. He is sovereign above all else. Theologians have a word for this. They call it transcendence. 
God is absolutely transcendent. He is wholly other. Elsewhere, Paul talks about this. He says, creation itself testifies to the existence of an all-powerful, self-sufficient God. In Romans 1, he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Look at the universe and you see the awesome power of an infinite, eternal God. I love Isaiah 40. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its people are like grasshoppers. He searches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to nothing, reduces the rulers of this world to naught. To whom will you compare me, God says, or who is my equal? And the application is obvious. If God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, if he is on our side, we are untouchable. We are invincible. No disease can hurt us. He created our bodies. No nuclear holocaust can destroy us. He'd see the nuclear bomb and just blow it out. No asteroid can wipe out the earth, right? Like a pinball, he'd just flick it out of the way. We have nothing to fear. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. But that raises the question, is God for us? Is God on our side? Does he care at all? God is the sovereign Lord of the universe is a wonderful truth, but it's only half the story. It doesn't help us much if God has no interest in us as human beings. In the period of Western history known as the Enlightenment, when science, the rise of the scientific method, when there was an attempt to explain everything by cause and effect relationships, the the philosophy of deism took hold. Many of our founding fathers were deists. Deists said basically that God created the world, established natural laws, but then never intervened in it. He was like a watchmaker who set the watch and then let it go. There was no supernatural whatsoever. Thomas Jefferson revised the Bible. You may be aware of the the Jefferson Bible, where he took all the miracles out because God doesn't intervene at all in the world. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not a distant, detached God. He's intensely concerned with his creation. So Paul turns to a second great truth, attribute of God. God is a God of love who offers a relationship to us through his son, Jesus Christ. God created us in his image and takes a personal interest in each of our lives. He designed the world around us as a perfect place. And he is deeply involved in his creation. Paul continues, verse 26. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any of us. He is not far from us, Paul says. God desires to be in relationship with you. He then quotes a Greek philosopher who says, we are his offspring. God is our father. Theologians have another word for this. We saw transcendent. They say God is imminent. God is close. God created us to be in relationship with him. I think one of the things the pandemic has most taught me and reminded me of, who have, I have kind of hermit inclinations in my life. 
but he's taught me the importance of relationships. And we've seen the damage that can become, come to children who don't have the social interaction of school, right? We've seen the toll on mental health for those who are isolated. Zoom is great, all right, but it's just not enough. And as the pandemic has begun to wane, we're getting back to some of the activities we've done we haven't done in a long time. And I'm learning how much I appreciate relationships I've taken for granted. The other day we had friends over, actual people, and they came in our house, actually, without masks, right? We ate food together. We talked. We laughed. It was wonderful. The other day, I went to a baseball game with two of my colleagues from Bethel, two of my best friends. Remember baseball? And there were, listen, you don't believe it, there were real people in the stands, not made of cardboard. They weren't cutouts. It was amazing. It was delightful. It didn't hurt that the Padres trounced the Rockies 15 to 1 either, but that's another story. Then last Saturday, last Saturday, we went to my youngest son's college graduation. Can you believe that? Luke, little Luke, has graduated from college. Masks and social distancing were still required, but we were there together enjoying the glorious California sunshine. Afterwards, the family went to a celebratory, yeah, a dinner to celebrate at a restaurant in Santa Monica. Remember restaurants? I don't just mean the drive-thru, right? It's a place where we went inside and sat down and there was a live waitress who came over to us and talked to us and we placed an order and they brought food and we didn't need to leave. We could eat the food right there. It was amazing. It was wonderful. See, the doctrine of imminence reminds us that we were created to be in relationships with God and with one another. It also reminds us that when we, like selfish children, rebelled against him, when we broke our relationship with God, he did not reject us. Instead, he sent his son to save us. The ultimate demonstration of imminence was the incarnation. When God came near, when the word became flesh, God became a human being and lived a perfect life. And went to the cross and suffered and died for our sins so we could come back into right relationship with God. Christ's incarnation was the ultimate act of love. Okay, we've seen two great attributes of God. His transcendence, the sovereign Lord of all, creator of all things. His imminence, our loving heavenly father who cares deeply for us. But if you think about it, these two, if true, create a dilemma. That dilemma is known as the problem of evil. If God is good, if he loves us, as he does, and if he's all-powerful, then why do bad things happen to good people? If God is so good and all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? If God is able to destroy evil and desires to do the best for us, then why do bad things happen? So there's a third point that Paul makes about God in this great speech. It's the answer, really, to the problem of evil. And that is that God is a God of justice who will one day right every wrong and restore the world to perfection. The problem of evil asks, where is God when tragedy strikes? We've all asked that question, right? Where is God when my friend dies of cancer? 
Where's God when that tornado wreaks havoc in a town? Where's God when the innocent die in war in the Middle East? Where's God when children are starving in famine? The biblical answer is that the day is coming when God will right every wrong. Verse 31, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. The answer to the problem of evil, how can God continue How can God allow evil to continue is that he will not let it continue forever. A day of judgment is coming when every wrong will be made right, when every evil will be judged. You see, contrary to the Epicureans and beer commercials, you don't just go around once in life. This world is a testing ground for eternity, a place of preparation. And this world, the way it is, with all of its suffering, all of its challenges, all of its pain, all of its loss, is the perfect place to craft our lives for eternity. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Compared to eternity, all of the suffering we experience is just a moment preparing us shaping us for eternity. Why did God allow COVID-19? Why didn't he just stop it before it spread? The answer is he allowed it to reveal his glory. And he allowed it to shape our souls for eternity. In the pandemic, we've seen great suffering, but we've also seen great acts of love, great acts of self-sacrifice. Frontline workers, nurses and doctors, giving of themselves, social workers, police and fire. We saw the image of God reflected in the incredible creative power of scientists who produced a vaccination in record time. To be sure, in this world we see great evil, but we also see the response to that as lives are being shaped for eternity. I love how Paul ends his message in verse 31. He says, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Proof of what? Proof of everything he's been saying. The nature of God is transcendent as imminent. The justice of God. I love that while Paul starts in a very different place in this message than he does in the synagogue, when he's preaching in the synagogue, he ends in exactly the same place. He ends with the resurrection. Because the resurrection in the Bible, all roads lead to the resurrection because the resurrection is proof positive of everything that Paul has been teaching it's proof of the transcendence of God because the power to give life is the power of the, the sovereign God the same God who said let there be light says let there be life in the resurrection secondly it's proof of God's imminence Throughout the New Testament, the resurrection is the vindication and proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Proof that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, who so loved the world that he gave himself to die for us, to bring us eternal salvation. That's proof of the imminence of God, the resurrection. Third, it's proof positive of God's justice. Throughout the New Testament, the resurrection is confirmation that we too will be raised. That whatever suffering we endure... 
Whatever injustice we experience in this life, whatever pain we go through, there will be a restoration when God raises us from the dead and eternity will will exceed anything we have suffered in this world. Some commentators say that Paul's message was a failure because he changed his message from the one he preached in the synagogue and because only a few believed. I beg to differ. Look at verse 34. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Luke says some believed. Hey, if one person believed, that would have been enough. If one person entered eternity because of this day, that would be enough. We've got Dionysius. We've got Demarius. We've got a number of others. People come into a relationship with Christ because Paul left his comfort zone, went up on the hill, proclaimed the good news of the unknown God and his son, Jesus Christ. So the question for us is, are we willing to leave our comfort zone? To step out of where we feel most comfortable, most at home. To share the love of Jesus Christ with those who've never heard it. To contextualize the gospel. To take the message into context where they don't understand it, where they don't get it. And to connect to them in ways that they'll respond with faith and obedience. Would you close your eyes with me as we close this part of our service together? Will you leave your comfort zone? If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me just invite you to do that today. He is not just sovereign Lord who created the universe. He is the one who loves you, the one who cares for you deeply, who longs to be in relationship with you. If you've never accepted him as your Savior, let me just encourage you to make that decision today. Maybe you're a believer, but you wandered off. You've wandered away from God in recent times. Listen to Paul's words here. He is not far from us. You may have wandered from God, but he is like that father and the prodigal son. He is there on the road. He is looking, watching, waiting, longing for you to return. He will embrace you and bring you back into full fellowship with him. If you've never, if you've wandered away, we just encourage you. Come back to God today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this message from your apostle, the apostle Paul. Thank you for the great truths of your absolute transcendence, that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe. We thank you for your eminence, that you cared and loved us enough to send your son to suffer and die for us. We thank you for your justice, that you will return to establish your eternal kingdom, to make every wrong right, and to bring us into your relationship with you forever and ever. Amen. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.